Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Gerald Bray. He is Research Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School at Samford University. He's the author of numerous things, numerous books, including Preaching the Word with John Chrysostom, God Has Spoken, and Doing Theology with the Reformers. He has a new book out. It is entitled Anglicanism, A Reformed Catholic Tradition. Professor Bray, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, well, let's we'll jump right into the book, as we always do on, on this show. Uh, you locate the actual origin of the, or the most important origin, I should say, of the Anglican Church in the 1830s. Uh, what was going on then? Yeah, that's a very good uh, question. Not the Anglican Church. It depends how you phrase that. Right. What I, uh, I said, the word Anglicanism, the concept of Anglicanism, okay. really got stuck in at that time. Of course, the church itself had existed for a long time before that. Apparently, the origin came from France, of all places, because in the Catholic Church in France, before the Revolution, there was a strong movement towards an affirmation of a national church ethos, you might say, um, in communion with Rome, but nevertheless distinct from it, mm-hmm. the way that it operated. And this was, this was known as Gallicanism. And proponents of Gallicanism uh, often pointed to the Church of England, which, which of course was separated from Rome, but said, well, this is the sort of thing that, you know, we, that we want in a way, only in communion with Rome. And they said, the Church of England practices Anglicanism, uh, as we want Gallicanism. Mm-hmm. And from there, uh, of course, at the time of the French Revolution, a number of French priests had to flee into exile. A number went to, to Britain at that time, uh, where they were well received, uh, generally speaking, um, and spread these ideas around. But it was after that that this notion caught on uh, in certain circles in England that the Church of England represented a form of Christianity which could stand comparison with Roman Catholicism on the one hand and with Eastern Orthodoxy on the other. Now, of course, the people who thought this way at the time had very the, had relatively little experience of Roman Catholicism. Um, I mean, they had a little bit, but not a whole lot, because they'd been cut off from continental Europe by Napoleon and so on for quite a long time, and people didn't travel then the way they do now. And of course, they 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 knew very little about Eastern Orthodoxy, so it was easy to sort of fantasize about these things. But uh, you know, they imagined that the their own church, the Church of England, you know, was a, was a kind of third branch 
of, if you like, of, of the uh, uh, of the Christian world. And this was uh, this was promoted in varying degrees. It also tied in with Romanticism, the Romantic movement, the opposition to the French Revolution. That was a very powerful force. Disquiet with the Industrial Revolution. Because, of course, this was a time when people were leaving the countryside in, in large numbers and going to the cities and uh, creating the industrial slums. And, you know, people people were very uh, upset about the, the way society seemed to be falling apart in some ways and, and looking for answers, wondering, you know, how did this happen? Where did it come from? And so there was a search for, for roots, for tradition, for, uh, for uh, a pre-industrial era that had that had disappeared uh, you know well it was romanticism is this why some people prefer the term anglican to episcopalian well that's a good question you see because uh, of course you have to ask yourself why is this the case and because originally you see episcopalians wouldn't would never have called themselves anglican because the word anglican implied english and in other in other countries of, of of the british isles i mean in scotland for example or in ireland the term anglican was not used uh, until very recently i mean it's in the last generation that this word has been taken up again because it's associated with being english somehow whereas episcopal of course describes the kind of church government that they have. And you do wonder when people break away groups from the Episcopal Church in the United States seem to be calling themselves Anglican. Is this a search for for a lost paradise kind of thing? You know, are they, uh, is, is it a kind of romanticism? It's a good question. Um, I wouldn't presume to answer it because I, you know, I'm not one of those people, but you do wonder. The book does contain a, a rich early history of the of the Anglican Church, Church of England, and the, the relation between Anglicanism and the Church of England. Uh, I don't know if you want to go into that or, or also go into how, how Lutheranism influenced the early Anglican Church. Yeah. Well, again, this is an interesting, it's a very complicated subject. I mean, one of the reasons I've gone into this to the degree that I have is, be, is because people don't, are not aware of it, you know, they or they have a very mixed view of uh, of this of this. They, they 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 picked up bits and pieces here and there. That you know, there's a sort of Celtic revival ideas and New Age things and all sorts of funny things that go back and forth. Uh, you know, I mean, some people seem to think that C.S. Lewis is the founder of Anglicanism and uh, you know this this kind of thing. And we try to sort of set it out and say, well, look, no, uh, there was a Church of England for a thousand years, nearly before the Reformation. That is quite true. And, you know, Christianity was implanted in the British Isles. And there was a mixture of Roman influence and Celtic influence. And, you know, these things did, did sort of mix uh, together. Um, but nobody thought of this as being Anglican. I mean, when the term was used, the Ecclesia Anglicana, referred purely geographically, nationally. I mean, this was the, the church as it existed in England. Uh, it didn't represent a, a special kind of theology. And indeed, the people who, who were members of it would have been horrified if you suggested that. Um, you know, that the last thing they wanted was to be different <laughs> from the rest of the Christian world. So, you know, that, that, that wouldn't have applied. Now, when you come to Luther, Lutheranism, 
this again is complicated because when Martin Luther first put out his theses and so on and challenged the authority of the papacy, the Pope wrote round uh, the rulers of, of Europe asking for support. And the only person who actually supported him was Henry VIII, King of England, who went so far as to write a book uh, in, in defense of the papacy against Martin Luther. And for that, the Pope rewarded him with the title Defender of the Faith, uh, which, of course, the present Queen still bears. And the, the irony of that, of course, is that the, the faith that the present Queen is expected to defend uh, is the one that Henry VIII was attacking. So <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a little odd. But, of course, Henry and Luther never hit it off. I mean, when Henry broke with Rome over the question of, of the annulment of his marriage, there was a point where it seemed that the Pope, if he had been free to do so, uh, might well have granted the annulment to to Henry. And Luther was outraged. I mean, Luther thought this was terrible, that you know Henry was an immoral man and didn't want to have anything to do with it. So Luther was opposed to the very reason why Henry broke with Rome and you know they, they, they just they just weren't on the same wavelength at all and uh, later on I mean they they tried to to cobble together a, an alliance but uh, it, it was a kind of case of you know my enemies enemies my friend sort of thing rather than uh, any genuine meeting of heart and minds and so it never it, it never really took off in, in quite the way that some people might imagine and Henry Henry, of course, see what Henry wanted was a Catholic Church without the Pope. Unfortunately, well, unfortunately for him, uh, of course, that wa that wasn't possible. <laughs> and and the, the the Catholic Reformation, I mean, the Reformation that was going on in Rome at the same time, was actually centering on the papacy, making the papacy more important, not less important, than it had been before. And of course, that was totally contrary to what Henry VIII was, were, wanted. You term the Book of Common Prayer the, devotion, quote, devotional pillar of the church. What does the Book of Common Prayer provide? I mean, is, it, is this one way of differentiating at least the liturgy from the, from the Catholic Church? Yes, I suppose so. I mean, again, to, to put this in, in, into context, I would say that every church, it doesn't matter what the church is, any, every church has three pillars uh, which constitute it and has to, has to address three fundamental issues. The first one, of course, is doctrine. If you don't have doctrine, you don't have beliefs, um, you, you can't really have a church. I mean, what, you know, where would the boundaries be? The second one is discipline. You have to, your members of your church have to subscribe to the doctrine and, and be kept in line one way or another. If, if, it, if it can't be done by persuasion, then it may have to be done in some other way. But you know, the, the, there has to be some kind of consistency uh, and cohesion to the, to the institution. And then the third, the third pillar, is, which is what you refer to, is devotion. That, of course, the purpose of the church, of any church, is to worship and glorify God. That's, that's the, the, the end in view. And the Book of Common Prayer is, is a way of putting doctrine into a disciplined form 
for the purpose of devotion, that uh, it expresses the doctrine of the church uh, in a very uh, clear and concise way. It is set out uh, in a form that is meant to be adhered to, and the whole notion of common prayer, that everybody's praying in the same way, uh, is a form of discipline. Uh, and of course, the, the, the whole point of it is to get closer to God. Uh, I love reading the Book of Common Prayer. <laughs> I, I, I really do. It is a great resource and uh, a great monument to our faith. Of course, you see, the, as with all these things, there are people who put the cart before the horse, as it were. And we've, we've seen this in, in uh, recent times, the last generation, partly through liturgical revision, partly through ecumenical uh, movements and so on. But, I mean, I'm not saying these things are bad, but these are factors which have come in, into play. And also the, the, the relative lack of discipline that there is in, in the main uh, Anglican churches, at least in the Western world, has seen a pr proliferation of, of liturgies which, uh, which don't necessarily have much to do with the historical liturgy of the church and which are being used or have been used by people have been have been um, uh, propagandized, if you like, uh, as saying, well, you know, the doctrine of the church is what the liturgy says. But then, of course, they fiddle around with the liturgy and change the doctrine, or at least imagine they change the doctrine. Whereas, in fact, of course, it's the uh, one of the things I've tried to point out in my book is it's the other way around, that the, the Book of Common Prayer, the historical Book of Common Prayer, is an expression of the church's doctrine, but that the doctrine comes first. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. Now, to, to go back again into the history, you, you spent a little time talking about the, those doggone Puritans back in the 17th century. What, what was the relation of Puritanism to the development of the church? Well, Purit Puritanism, uh, yes. I mean, as I say, doctrine, d discipline, and devotion, these are the three pillars. The English reformers were able to compose a satisfactory statement of doctrine in the Articles of Religion. You know, they, they got their act together there. They produced a, a book of common prayer, which is a satisfactory devotional thing. But when it came to discipline, in particular the training of the clergy and uh, you know the organization of, of parish life and so on, although they tried to do this, I mean, uh, they, they, they wanted to have an equally strong church discipline, they were frustrated in this by by the lay people, by the House of Lords and the Parliament, uh, you know, which didn't didn't want to be told what to do, uh, basically by by clergy, and and so that sort of got pushed to one side. And over the over time, I mean, the, 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 well, as, in, in reaction to that, 
people in the church who who took the doctrine seriously, who took the devotion seriously, said we we need to get the the discipline sorted out, and this is what Puritanism really is or was. It was a movement for stricter church discipline. It was, in a way, a kind of idealism. I think if if you look at Puritanism as an idealism. You, you can begin to understand it. I mean, I don't know that a lot of people realize this, but in the early 20th century, Marxists and, and, and you know, the Bolsheviks and people like this uh, had a great admiration for the Puritans. Yes. Because like them, they were idealists. <laughs> you know, they thought that, that you could change society. And basically, well, the Bolsheviks wouldn't have called them godly people, but, but it was the same idea to, you know, to, to produce a, a morally upright citizenry uh, in that way. And that's what the Puritans tried to do. And I suppose the tragedy of Puritanism is that the more they tried to do it, the more they realized how impossible it was. I mean, and here, of course, Americans are better placed than British people to understand this. Because if you go back to the early history of New England, I mean, this is what you see. I mean, people sailed across the Atlantic in order to establish a perfect society and discovered as they got, you know, that the devil had got in, that people weren't perfect, that, you know, things things were going wrong somehow, and they couldn't really figure it out. And you ended up after a couple of generations with witch trials and things like this, because they were just convinced that, you know, there was some spiritual power which was out to destroy them. But it, it came from this sense of, of, you know, of idealism that uh, we know the truth. We know what we want to to, to impose, and and what, why is it going wrong? The question that was asked, and it's a fascinating thing to study. I always tell my students this: that you see the what actually sent the Pilgrim Fathers across the Atlantic was something that uh, that the King King James the first, you know, the Bible one issued this book of sports in which he said that you could not prevent people from from playing games on Sunday because that was the one day of rec- uh, of recreation that people had and the puritans were horrified by this because not so much they weren't so much against games but they they wanted the time uh, a sunday to be set aside um as a day for worship and for studying the scriptures and uh, they thought this was a a distraction and a desecration of the holy day uh you know to start playing games and but it was in those games of course that were played after church really on a sunday that modern games that we have you know like ball games of one kind or another uh, emerged they developed uh, out of that and I tell my students, I said, you know, the Puritans came to America to get away from football, um, <laughs> which which always amuses them. <laughs> but, but in a way, that's true. They were thinking along those lines. So I think you have to see it like this. There wasn't a difference of doctrine, really, between the Puritans and the rest of the church. I mean, on, on, on matters of doctrine, uh, they tended to agree. Even on... De- devotion. They, they, there were certain aspects of the prayer book that they wanted to modify, but on the whole, they were they were content with that. It was it was this this aspect of uh, of social discipline, social transformation, uh, you know, that really set them apart. You begin on page fifty four with really the bulk of the book, uh, which runs through the thirty nine articles. 
Tell us, what were the 39 articles? How did those come about? Well, the 39 articles were a statement of the basic principles which guided the English reformers. They had to sit down and say to themselves, you know, what what do we believe as a church? Because once the, the break with Rome had occurred, and of course it wasn't their doing, as, as you know, I mean, the king broke with Rome and then basically landed everybody with an independent church. And so, you know, what does this church believe? I mean, we're, 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 you know, what are, what are we all about? And uh, although there were sort of various ups and downs in the process, the leading English reformers basically set out to devise a, a confession of faith. And it's very interesting because if you look at it now, you know, from the modern standpoint, looking back, the articles of religion look fairly primitive and, and almost disorganized. But if you look at the time, if you go back to that time, they were the most, or in their original form, the 42 articles, which were later revised, they were the most systematic exposition of Protestant doctrine uh, in existence, uh, more systematic than anything that the Lutherans or the Calvinists uh, had at that particular time. And they set out very clearly that you have the beginning, what I call the Catholic articles, that is, those elements, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Scripture, um, uh, which bind all Christians everywhere. You know, that these are things that everybody's meant to share, whether you're Catholic, Orthodox, or whatever you are. Then you have the bulk of the articles which expound the, the differences, the, the, the issues that caused the Reformation. And they, they can be divided roughly half and half into, first of all, the, the order of salvation. Uh, when you're talking about sin, about justification by faith, about predestination, the pattern of the Christian life followed on by the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the ministry, and the doctrine of the sacraments, church ministry and sacraments, which were points of contention. Then after that, you get a couple of articles dealing with local conditions in England, specific to the Church of England. And then you have a couple tacked on at the end, uh, sort of miscellaneous, because nobody quite knew where they belonged. Uh, I mean, the right to private property, for example, and the validity of oath-taking, two things which were contested, well, both by Anabaptists on the one hand, uh, you know, the radicals of the Protestant Reformation, but also, of course, by the monastic tradition at the other side, because the monks didn't believe in private property uh, either. So, uh, you know, it was kind of setting out uh, their stall in that way. And these things, although in recent years, the, uh, say in the last hundred years or so, the Anglican world has tended to ignore them. We have the, the, the 39 articles. We have the Book of Common Prayer. I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I want, I want to tell listeners that for your book, we have... The bulk of your book is a very nice summary of those 39 articles. So we we get a very complete presentation of an overview of of doctrines such as the sacraments and so on. But in your final pages, you you come into the the recent developments in the Anglican Church. And as you implied early, we've had something of 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 a splintering. We have different versions of the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, is is this watering down the identity of the Anglican Church too much? 
Well, this is this is a question I think that has to be asked because I mean, obviously, uh, it, the the variety of books of common prayer is is a is an outcoming an outcrop of the the growing in, independence of the the member what you might call the member churches of the Anglican Communion. That the question is, well, for example, can the Episcopal Church in the United States take decisions? Like, for well, originally the ordination of women, but now coming on to things like same-sex marriage and what have you, can they do this without consulting the rest of the, the Anglican world? And do they just turn to the rest of the Anglican world and say, well, we have the right to do this, we're an independent church, we can do what we like, and, you know, you've just got to accept it. Let, let, me, let me ask, wh- where is the Anglican church either the splintering with different ones or, you know, the core doctrine. Where does that stand on same-sex marriage? Well, uh, at the moment, officially, it's against it. That the, the, the Lambeth Conference in 1998 was very clear on this point, you see, that uh, same-sex marriage and, and, and all of that was, was basically ruled out. But then the, the, what has happened, of course, is that that's been ignored by people who want to ignore it and held up as as definitive by those who want to defend who who want to defend the traditional position so you're getting a huge falling out over that and then the question arises as in this country for example those episcopalians let's just call them that for now who object to same sex marriage for example leave the episcopal church form other churches, I mean, of which I suppose the Anglican Church in North America is the most substantial, then the question arises, is that church, the so-called breakaway church, as you might call it, is that the authentic church? Is that the real Anglican church? Has the Episcopal church, the formal Episcopal church, fallen into heresy or apostasy or whatever? And and that's a difficult question. You see, that that's the issue. Can the two coexist? Well, there you come up against another thing that traditionally the Anglican Church has has operated on a territorial basis, and that theoretically you can't have more than one in the same geographical area. But that's something that has happened, you know, historically, I suppose, more or less by accident. And how fundamental is it to our existence? I mean, in a way, it gets very confusing because, for example, well, for example, I mean, let's take a historical example. The Church of England has never tried to evangelize in, say, France or Germany or somewhere like that, whereas the Baptists, for instance, will go everywhere. Uh, you know, there'll be a Baptist church in any country in the world. Um, whereas the Anglicans have always, uh, you said, no, well, we, we, don't, we don't create an Anglican church in France or in Germany because they have their own Christian churches and we respect that. Uh, you, you know, we, we're, not, we're not going there. So even to this day, I mean, if you find an Anglican church, say, in Paris, I mean, there are some, but they're English-speaking and they cater to, to foreigners, basically. They're not, they're, they're not evangelizing the French, or at least not directly. Uh, and so this, this question uh, uh, arises at this point, you see. I mean, uh, uh, you know, what, what do you do? And can you have 
different Anglican churches in, in the same country? Well, that's a, an open question. I mean, as far as England is concerned, you can't because the, the Church of England is an established state church. And so you either belong to it or you don't. And if you don't, you're not Anglican. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. It's a legal thing. But in the United States, of course, where it's with separation of church and state, it's kind of a free market in religion and, and who, who decides. I mean, that's a, a much more complicated issue. Let me ask a final, a final question uh, about uh, Anglicanism in America. What do members of the Anglican Church here like most about the church? Well, it's hard to say, but I think what attracts them most of all is, is, is the reverential nature of the liturgy. Hmm. And I can understand that because, I mean, maybe I'm just talking here personally, but what impresses me about, about Anglicanism in the United States is how reverential the worship is. You know, people are very, very conscious of this. And it may be because, I, I, I don't know why, I mean, it may be a reaction against some of the, what you might call happy, clappy stuff, you know, that you get in, in other Protestant churches, uh, and uh, a sense of disorder to some degree, or, you know, people not really knowing whether the, the lack of structure. And... Uh, you know, it could be that you see that that this this is what appeals to people in in England. On, on by contrast, where the, the structures are in place, I mean, in, 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 legally, the the actual church membership and the churches tend to go the other way. I mean, they tend to, you, you know, if you, you you go to an Anglican church in in England, you might, depending on I suppose depending on where you were, but certainly if you went to uh, uh, some of them anyway, would be no different from. Baptist or whatever here, you know, you you you'd be hard put to tell the difference, because people they have the, the structure is there, but they tend to they tend to react against it, and maybe it's the other way around here. But that's what I notice certainly, and you know, a very um, a strong sense of that. And a lot of people are attracted into the Anglican Church, looking for structure and discipline and and order in in their spiritual lives. And I wouldn't want to discourage that. I think it's a great thing. The book is Anglicanism. Thank you, Professor Bray. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.